looking at verses 1 through 13. With our focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 13. But again, we'll consider the broader context. Let me say a few words of introduction then before we read. If you are a follower of Christ, then you enjoy a position of great privilege. For you are a child of God, and therefore an heir in His kingdom. Just as the children of a king or the king's friends may approach the ruler without fear, we have free access to the throne of God in prayer through His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore we pray, making our requests known to Him, for He is more loving than the most gracious Father, more powerful than the mightiest King, and better than the best friend. He is able and willing to give good things to His children, so we ought always to pray. This is the message of the text before us this morning in Luke chapter 11. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend? Who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and get you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we do come to you and we make this request. We seek this favor and grace from you. We knock at your door and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would open your word to us so that we might hear it, that we might believe it, that we might receive it with joy overflowing. May we be changed this morning as we hear your word, Lord. May we go forth from this place as people who indeed delight to bring every one of our requests to you, our gracious Heavenly Father, trusting that you will answer them according to your perfect wisdom according to your great grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it will be helpful to remind you of the main points from the message last week because the subject of prayer is so important for us to learn. As Christians, we always ought to pray. This is a fundamental practice in the Christian life. So we should strive to learn these lessons well. I believe that a reminder will help us to do that. Last week, we began with a question. Why do we struggle to pray? And I proposed two common answers. We do not pray because we think we do not know how. And we do not pray because we think it will make no difference. In the first case, we see and observe others praying, both the, in the Bible and in our experience. And it looks like an elaborate process that must have taken years to learn. Something better left to the professionals. In the second case, we know what it is like to make requests to God and to not receive what we have asked. So we wonder if the whole process is just futile. Or we consider 
that God is sovereign in all things, and His will must surely be done. So we wonder, what's the point? What is the point of offering my prayers? Now we saw in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus instructed His disciples how to pray by giving them a simple framework to structure their prayers. There were no elaborate methods. They did not need to prepare by dressing a certain way, by fasting, by seeking a priest or an intermediary, by assuming a certain posture, or by any other external expression. It does not mean that you cannot do these things. Many will kneel when they pray privately. Many will lay on their beds. Many will go about their everyday business. Some might even raise their hands and look heavenward. All of these things can be appropriate in various contexts, appropriate expressions that, we, that accompany our prayers, but none of these external actions are essential to Christian prayer. They do not make or break our prayers. Jesus was much more concerned with internal matters of the heart, and so He taught us that we do know how to pray, for we merely need to approach God the same way that a child approaches a good father. He taught His disciples, therefore, how to approach God, how to order their thoughts according to God's purpose, and how and what to ask God for. So He first invited them to approach God as their Father, a privilege that Jesus has accorded to us, Then he taught them to order their thoughts and desires towards God's glory and his kingdom. And finally, he instructed them to ask God to provide for their daily physical and spiritual needs in terms of daily bread, the forgiveness of sins, and sanctifying power. This simple framework can and should serve as a model for all of Christ's disciples. This is how we should pray, not merely repeating the words of the Lord's Prayer, but using the words to order our own thoughts in prayer. Well, last week I also proposed an initial response to our second problem. Why should I pray if God is sovereign and when He does not seem to answer my prayers? When we looked at the examples of prayerful believers in Luke's Gospel, we saw first a generation of praying men and women in Luke chapter 1 and 2 who patiently persevered as they prayed for the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. And God brought that fulfillment as an answer to their prayers, not apart from their prayers. In fact, the work He began in Luke chapter 1 and 2 was an answer to the prayers of many generations of Israelites who sought God's favor and sought the fulfillment of those things that God had promised all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. So we observed that What seems like an unanswered prayer sometimes may in actuality be a call for us to patiently persevere, trusting that God will answer prayers that are according to His will, according to the timing that He has determined. But we also noted the example of Jesus Himself, who by His example encouraged us to think altogether differently about prayer. We tend to think of it like a chore or a duty, but He looked at it from another perspective. He viewed prayer as an opportunity to enjoy communion with the Father. Therefore, he prioritized it more than sleep, more than work, more than fellowship with his disciples, more than everything else. When we think about Jesus, we must remember that he is the eternal Son of God who became fully man without ceasing to be the eternal Son of God. As the Son of God, he always has and always will enjoy perfect communion with God the Father. But he became a man. We call this the incarnation. And as a man 
in His incarnate life. He showed us what it looks like to live as a child of God in communion with our Heavenly Father in the context of a human life. Prayer is a major part of that, not as a duty and a chore, but as a privilege we should seek out. If I can put it another way, let me simply point out that Jesus' incarnation did not sever His perfect communion with God the Father. Rather, in His humanity, He continued to express the perfection of His relationship with the Father through prayer. And because of what He's done for us, He accords that privilege to us as well. This week I asked one of my daughters if she enjoys writing letters or if she thinks of it as a chore. And she smiled and said, well, when it's a thank you note, it's more of a chore. Well, then I asked her, what if it's a letter to one of your friends? She said, then I really enjoy it. In fact, all of my daughters can spend hours writing letters to their friends. Prayer should be like that. A joy-filled experience of communion with God where we order our thoughts to His good purposes while bringing our needs before Him. The reason why it's like letter writing is because we do not experience it like the kind of conversation that we can have with one another when we are face to face. Nevertheless, that should not deprive us of the joy of the experience. The same kind of joy that a child experiences when writing a letter to her best friend. Now I felt compelled to summarize all of this from last week because of how important I believe it is for us as a church. One of my hopes and desires is that we should be a church of praying men and women but we're not going to get there unless we learn to pray as our Lord taught us. In some ways, it may feel like a duty at first, but I'm sure that as we grow in this together, it will become more of a delight as we individually and corporately seek the will of our Father in heaven here on earth. So let us commit to learning to pray. Let us commit to learning to pray well as we come to Jesus like His disciples and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, as we come back to the passage that is before us then, in verses 5 and onward, we see that Jesus gives His disciples two parables, two proverbial kind of illustrations that are meant to encourage them to pray. These two parables surround a memorable phrase, which I'm sure many of you have memorized. You find it in verse 9 and 10. Look at that text with me. Jesus here says, And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. For many of the, us, these words are a great encouragement. We might use them particularly as we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors. We continue to draw encouragement from them as ourselves in our own life. But for many of us, these words also discourage us because they feel sometimes like an unkept promise. We reflect on all the times when we have asked for something. We have not received it. And we wonder, are these words really true? Now, you may be familiar with these words, which were written by James, the brother of Jesus. You can find them in James chapter 4. You can listen to me as I read them. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, James instructed early Christians saying, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask, and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. 
James wrote to Christians who struggled with the same problem that we struggle with. Now, I do not think he was accusing them of murder in the literal sense, but rather in the sense in which Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says if a man is angry with his brother, he has murdered him in his heart. Nevertheless, they were guilty of this sin. They coveted, they wanted things, and yet they did not seek them by praying. And even when they did pray, if they were to object and say, we do pray, James told them why their prayers were unanswered. They were too focused on the selfish pursuit of their sinful passions. In other words, they were asking for the wrong things, things that God was not willing to give them because they had not ordered their thoughts and requests according to the principle we find in the phrase, let your kingdom come. Indeed, he used the language of the Ten Commandments, which we heard read this morning, speaking of murder and speaking of covetous there in the Tenth Commandment, to show them that they were seeking to fulfill sinful desires, covetous desires, in contradiction to God's expressed will. In short, James taught that God will not grant our requests when they are meant to satisfy our sinful desires. So this answers our question. In part, why does God not answer my prayers? But it raises new questions. First, we might reasonably object that we do pray for things that seem to conform to God's will as we find it in Scripture. What about those things that we ask for? In other words, not all of our unanswered prayers are prayers that are meant to fulfill selfish and covetous desires. God willed to save His people. Many Israelites prayed for that redemption long before the coming of Christ. Why did God not answer their prayers when they prayed them? In the same way, we wonder, why does God not answer our prayers with immediacy as well? Second, we still wonder if James is contradicting the words of Jesus. After all, did not Jesus say, Ask and it will be given to you? And everyone who asks receives? That sounds like something said without qualification. But we can deal with these problems, these, both of these issues, by applying an important interpretive principle, which we talked about this morning in Sunday school. We must apply it every time we come to a text of Scripture, especially those ones which are easy to rip from their context and apply in situations where they don't apply. That is, when we read Scripture, we must attend to the context in which we find a verse in order to understand the words correctly. We must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. It's good to memorize individual verses like Luke 11, verses 9 and 10, but we should also attempt to keep the context in mind when we recite them, if we are to understand them aright. In the context, Jesus had taught His disciples how to approach God and what to ask from Him. He taught them to order their thoughts by saying, let your kingdom come and hallowed be your name. In other words, to order their expectations and the desires according to God's glory and God's kingdom and what He's revealed concerning those ultimate purposes. Then He taught them to ask for particular things, daily provision, forgiveness of sins, Sanctifying power, in those words, lead us not into temptation. If our prayers can be summarized by the statements we find in the Lord's Prayer, we can expect our requests to be granted according to God's perfect wisdom. But if you ask God for forgiveness, as we saw in the Lord's Prayer, and you are not forgiving others, as Jesus taught us, we should not expect Him to answer that prayer. A prayer that comes 
and flows from a hypocritical heart. Jesus gave that qualification expressly for us. If you ask God to provide for your daily needs, and then you start to ask Him for things that are well beyond your daily needs, things that you don't need but that you want in order to satisfy your pride or your passions, don't be surprised that He doesn't provide those things for you. But if you ask God for forgiveness and you are forgiving to others, as Jesus taught, you can be confident that God will forgive you if you ask. For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as we see in 1 John 1, 9. Again, if you ask God to provide for your daily needs, you can be confident that He will. As Jesus has said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God provides for birds day by day. You are worth more to Him than birds. Will He not also provide for you your daily needs? And when you pray that God would sanctify you, delivering you from temptation, you can be sure that He will do it. So ask for this, just as the Apostle Paul prayed for the Philippians, saying, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see how that prayer accords with the glory and the kingdom purposes of God. And so Paul prayed it for the Philippians and for all of the churches. He always prayed this way for the churches because he was confident in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to do this very thing. So we ought also to pray in these ways for ourselves and for one another. If our prayers align with these priorities, we can rest in the certainty of Jesus' encouraging words. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to him it will be opened. Now, I know that I've not dealt with every issue yet. I know that some may still be thinking, this does not always seem to be true in my life. And nowhere is this more apparent, I think, than in matters of sanctification. This, that is, as we struggle with sin in our lives, we find ourselves stumbling in many of the same ways again and again, and we feel as if there is precious little growth in our lives. We stumble even though we pray that God would sanctify us in very particular ways, and yet it seems very slow in coming. We know that God wills our sanctification and our joy, and so we know that it's right to pray for this. As the Apostle Paul expressly taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And as Peter taught the churches to submit to right authorities in their lives, he expressly said, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we have these examples of passages that tell us in clear and unmistakable terms what God's will is for our lives in terms of our personal holiness. And some of you have prayed that God would make you joyful, thankful, humble, and holy. But you feel as if He is not answering this prayer. In my own life, I know what this feels like also. Day by day, I know what it feels like. It's not a foreign idea to me. I know what it feels like to pray for holiness and to find that God is not working in my life at the pace that I might like. 
How can we account for that common experience? How can we find encouragement to persevere in prayer, trusting that God is answering us as we ask? The parables in this passage will help us. Both of these parables operate on the same logic, which can be described as an argument from the lesser to the greater. That is, if something less likely to be true is true, then something more likely will also be true. In the first instance, we see the behavior of one friend to another, contrasted with the actions of God towards us. And we see in the character of that friend, as he does a kindness to his neighbor who asks, though he is evil, we reflect upon the character of Almighty God, that he is good and perfect in goodness. The reasoning goes, how much more will he do what is good for those who ask? Look there then with me at that first parable. There in verse 5, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. To understand this parable, we need to step into the world of first century Israel, where hospitality was a time-honored cultural value, but a nighttime visitor was an unexpected guest. People did not normally travel at night, but it sometimes happened. Moreover, inns, hotels that is, were uncommon and generally not reputable establishments. So travelers depended upon the hospitality from, that they could receive from friends and neighbors, even strangers in the town. In other words, everyone hearing Jesus would have understood that the man whose friend came into town, had, that is, if they were in that, that situation, they had a cultural obligation to show hospitality to this friend by providing him with food and lodging. Because the friend's visit was unexpected, however, the man was unprepared. The inconvenient situation would have been an embarrassment for him and a cause for shame. And that is why he is not afraid to bear that lesser indignity, to wake up his neighbor, his friend next door, knocking on his door to ask him for bread. That would be, for him, the lesser embarrassment. Now, the neighbor is a friend, but even the, their friendship will not motivate him to get up at that late hour. In a home in ancient Israel, there would have been one room where the whole family slept. That is why the man says, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. This is a great inconvenience. The man resists getting out of bed to help his friend. Nevertheless, he understands the needs of the moment. In one sense, as a member of this community, he bears some obligation to help his neighbor avoid the scandal of being inhospitable. And so, he rises and he gives him the bread because of his persistence, his impudence. That is, he persists in his request. And so, the neighbor the friend gives the loaves of bread to this man. And what's the point? The lesser to the greater logic at play leads us to conclude that if an inconvenienced neighbor will help his friend, even though he would rather not get up out of bed, how much more will God, who cannot be inconvenienced by our prayers? God knows all things. He hears all things. 
He can do all things. He is never stressed. He is never anxious. He is never overwhelmed by a situation. He is never inconvenienced by our prayers. He is never too busy. He never says to us, I am a great God, the great God. I don't have time for your prayers. We are never so important, unimportant that God will not take our needs and receive them in our prayers. In this sense, He is the best of friends, and we are encouraged to persistently take our needs to Him in prayer. That is why Jesus calls us to ask and seek and knock at God's proverbial door through prayer. Now, this thinking runs contrary to the way that we commonly think in our culture. We tend to think that the universe is so big and we are so small that our lives must be of no great concern to Almighty God. That was the idea that was at the root of the deism that many of our nation's founders embraced. They believed in God, but many of them thought of Him as a distant, cold, and uninterested being who did not care much for the details of their lives. This is not the picture we have from Scripture. Rather, we see that God is both transcendent and imminent. He is high above us and present with us. His majesty is great and His holiness unimaginable, but He makes His home with those who humble themselves in repentance and in faith, believe in His Son for salvation. This is why we often present the verses that conclude this parable when sharing the good news of the gospel with others. And rightly so, I want to do that right now. Even if you are, if you are here today, you, you've not trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I ask you to listen to what I have to say right now. You may be wondering, how can I enter into a relationship with God as my Father? How can I be right with Him, though I am a great sinner? How can I receive salvation? The answer is simply this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For the Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ, so he might live the perfect life that we could not live. Then he went to the cross to die the death we could not die. He died for us in our place to pay our debt of sin, a debt we all owe to God. On the third day he rose from the dead. Now he is in heaven, from where he will return on the last day to raise our bodies from the grave. And before that day he calls us to repent of our sin and believe in him. And he promises that all who do so will be saved and receive eternal life with Him. So ask for the salvation. It's freely offered. Seek it through faith in Christ, and you will be saved. That's the gospel. If you ask for it, you will receive it. Now as we think again, all of us together, those who have never prayed in that way, those who prayed that way long ago, we realize that this is also about the prayers that we pray throughout our life as Christians. And as we think about that, we're led into life as a child of God and taught to pray as a child of God, praying to our Heavenly Father. So we must consider the second parable, which teaches us that God is not just the best of friends, but our Heavenly Father is also the best of fathers. The second parable, therefore, balances the first by framing our expectations. It works by the same logic, a lesser to greater logic, but it deals with a slightly different question. The first parable dealt with the question, will God answer my prayers with a resounding yes, he will answer our prayers. The second parable deals with the question, 
how will God answer my prayers? When we ask for things, we must always bear in mind that we might ask for things that are not good. They're not for God's glory and they're not for our good. And we may not, we likely will not even realize that we are asking for things that are not good for us. Like a child who asks his father if he can eat ice cream for breakfast. We often ask our Father in heaven for things that are not to our benefit, even though we think they would be. We can be forever grateful, therefore, that though God answers our prayers, He does not cede control to us, though He were nothing more than a cosmic genie who grants unlimited wishes without regard to the consequences. God does not grant us whatever we wish and leave us to work through the consequences of bad wishes. God answers our prayers according to His perfect wisdom and His perfect goodness. We don't pray with perfect wisdom, but He answers with perfect wisdom. So in the second parable, as you look at verse 11 and following, you see that Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, fish and serpents share some common features. Those serpents really are not slimy. From a distance, they look slimy, and fish certainly are slimy. Likewise, scorpions tend to roll themselves into little balls that approximate the shape of an egg. It seems, therefore, that the idea here is of a cruel joke. A child asks for a fish or an egg, and at first... It appears that he has received what he has asked for, but after poking at the dish for a little while, a different story appears. Now, we dads sometimes play jokes on our children, but no decent father would do something so cruel and dangerous as this to his children. Again, the logical principle takes us from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father? But this parable also depends upon our recognition of two other basic truths. That we are sinners by nature, while God is perfect in holiness and righteousness by His nature. To acknowledge our basic sinfulness with the word evil is not to say that we are all as bad as can be. That is clear from the parable since Jesus acknowledges that evil people still know how to give good gifts. Rather, it is to say something about our natural and fundamental disposition to sin. Our sinfulness is not the point of the parable, but it is an important premise which many today would deny. Jesus' audience would have granted the premise without a problem, acknowledging their basic sinfulness. Modern Western culture would rather think that people are essentially good. At least we would wish to divide the world into those who are good and those who are evil. We view the world through rose-colored glasses, not as it is, especially when we look in the mirror. But Jesus does not. We must resist our inclination to think of ourselves as better than we ought. Jesus shows us the real truth of the matter. He alone is the only perfectly righteous man who has ever lived. And so we ought to adopt that mindset that was exemplified so many years ago in the famous author, G.K. Chesterton wrote in response to a request for letters to the editor to a British paper when they asked, what is the problem with the world? He wrote back and simply said, Dear sir, I am. We are all sinners by our nature. We grant this premise 
We are all evil. And yet we are not as bad as we could be. Every father here knows how to give good gifts to his children. And yet we are sinners. How much more than our Heavenly Father, who is perfect in holiness and perfect in righteousness and perfect in goodness, will always give good things to his children who ask for them. Now in the parable, God stands in the position of the Father giving the good gift, which means we stand in the position of children who do not decide what constitutes a good gift. If we ask for our daily bread, He will provide it. He will not give us stones instead, unless, that is, stones might be for our good and His glory. Then He will indeed give us stones. You see, life is complex, and just as children often ask for things that are not to their benefit, things that might be to their benefit in one context and yet not in another, we often ask for things that are not for our eternal good. We may think they are for our good, but they are not. God knows better, and we ought always to trust Him. What I am saying is this. If God does not grant us what we have asked for, it may be that we are not asking for something that is for our good and for His glory. It cannot be because He does not hear us. Neither can it be because He is not good and does not care for us. It must be some other reason that is consistent with both the perfect goodness of our Heavenly Father and His kingdom purposes. For example, we all suffer in various ways. Some here are suffering with illnesses or with lingering effects of injuries. Some of the things we suffer with are mental. Others are physical. Some of you are dealing with difficulties that are natural to your stage in life. If you are older, you likely take more medication than the children in our midst. You probably see the doctor more frequently. If you are a child, you have more homework, more rules, more anxieties of a certain kind than your elders. We can go on, but I think the point is made. Now, we often pray that God might relieve us of these challenges and anxieties. Lord, heal my body. Father, would you heal my mind? Please restore my broken relationships with family members and loved ones and friends. Will you cause, Lord, my dear friend, to believe the gospel? What if, however, the best thing for us is not to grant these things to us? When we ask or immediately upon every request, Very often, this is the case. Consider with me the example of the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. At one point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul wrote of the great revelations that he had seen and heard. God had caught him up to heaven some 14 years before he penned that letter. He didn't know if it was in the body or if it was an out-of-body experience in the spirit. There was lots he didn't know about it. But he had seen and heard awesome things, glorious things, things about which he could not even speak. Either he had no words to express the glories or he was forbidden to say anything about them. And yet, Paul's sinful nature was of such a sort that he would have been disposed, on account of that revelation, to pride, to conceit. And so God gave him a gift didn't really seem like a gift at first. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul began to write these words, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had a problem which he called his thorn in the flesh. We don't need to guess what that thorn in the flesh was. He tells us it was a demon, a messenger of Satan that tormented him. We ought not to think he was demon-possessed, but the demon was able to attack Paul in various ways. More than likely, these attacks produced a great deal of mental anguish in his life. Now, Paul prayed three times that God would take away this demonic tormentor, Three times he pleaded with the Lord, and after the third request, God said no. He told Paul why, saying, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul stopped asking for relief, and he began rejoicing in his weakness and suffering, knowing that it was an opportunity for God's name to be hallowed in his life, as Paul became an example of God's grace to broken people. An example of how the kingdom comes by God's power, not by ours. Essentially, Paul asked for relief from the tormentor, and God said, I can do better than that. I can carry you through it. So that's what I'm going to do. Indeed, this was better. For Paul had received such glorious revelations that there was a great risk that he would be overwhelmed with pride and conceit. And we know two firm truths about pride. The Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and pride goes before destruction. I would much rather be tormented by a demon than stand opposite Almighty God in opposition to Him because of my pride. So too Paul learned this. His natural sinfulness was of such a sort, the gracious revelation he had received might lead to his destruction through pride. So God, again, in a further show of his grace, preserved him from that destruction by giving him a reason for humility and by promising by his grace to sustain him through it. He gave him that which was for his eternal good and so it will be for us. This is how our good father exercises his eternal and unbreakable sovereignty even over the powers of hell for our good. Sometimes when we pray that God would relieve us of that which we are suffering, He says, no, but my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. In some, why does God not grant us all of our requests? The simple answer is because He is perfect in goodness and His wisdom is without measure. An even simpler answer is this. He is God and we are not. He knows what is best. And He gives us what is exa- exactly what is best, exactly when it is best to give it to us. This is re- true as regards our sanctification also. To bring it back to this line of questioning. When we struggle with sin that we cannot seem to overcome, and in despair we wonder why God does not answer our prayers for His sanctifying power. We can reason through this dilemma on the basis of these basic truths 
God is perfect in power and wisdom, and He is infinitely good. Therefore, it is not because my request is inconvenient, and it is not because He does not intend good for me. Moreover, we know that He has revealed that it is His will that we should be sanctified. So what's the solution? Let me suggest the solution is in knowing what God has clearly revealed concerning His will for our sanctification. That is, how He wills to accomplish our sanctification. Not only does He will for us to be sanctified, but He has also revealed how we should be sanctified. Simply, it is His will to sanctify us now by degrees, slowly but surely. And at the coming of Christ, finally and fully in a moment. And furthermore, he, has will, he wills to sanctify us through the means that He has appointed and not apart from them. God has given us three basic means that lead to our increase in holiness. Prayer, His Word, and fellowship with one another. And He has promised us the Holy Spirit who makes these instruments effective in our lives. As this passage concludes, the good gift that Jesus is most concerned with, the good gift that the Father will give to whoever asks for it, is the Holy Spirit. And the obvious implication is that we should pray for the Father to give us the Holy Spirit. But we should not expect the Spirit to work apart from the means that God has appointed for our spiritual growth. Neither should we expect Him to work faster than He is willing to work. As Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this work in our lives as we look to Christ, transforming us into the likeness of Christ, into the image of Christ, and so reforming us into the image of God in which we were created. But He does this now in this age, not all at once, but by degrees. He does transform us. He is in the process of purifying us. It's not because He's not able to purify us completely in a moment. After all, He will do this at the coming of Christ. But because in His perfect wisdom, God has ordained for our good that we should be transformed by degrees. Moreover, He accomplishes this in us even now as our bodies waste away with the challenges of life in a fallen world. And He does this as we pray, as we receive the Word on our own and together, and as we encourage one another in the regular pattern of our life together. He is doing this. I see this in your lives. Sometimes I pray that the Lord would heal your injuries, and that the Lord would heal various illnesses that you deal with. And very often, He doesn't do it right away. Most of the time, He doesn't. But other times, in fact, very often, Lord willing, more and more, I pray that the Lord would give you strength to carry you through, that the Lord would give you joy in the midst of your trials. And then, the next time I see the person for whom I'm praying, you come to me and you say, I had a great week. I'm sharpened and changed by the Word. As I think upon the promises of God, I realize that He can carry me through these things. 
and things like that. I don't say it to your face, but I say in my heart, and I'm saying it to you now, in my heart I rejoice and I say amen. An answered prayer from the Lord who can move mountains. He is doing this. I see it in your lives. He will do this more and more, for He has promised and He is faithful. Only trust Him. Do not hold Him to a promise He has not made. Rather, trust in His perfect goodness and His grace and receive the means He has appointed for your growth. And in this and in all things, for our daily bread, for our forgiveness of sins, and for His sanctifying grace in our lives. And pray. Let us do this now together. Father in heaven, we do pray, we praise you, and we rejoice. For you indeed are our gracious Father in heaven, who knows all that we need before we even ask. And indeed, you are already in the process of answering our many prayers, even before we make them to you. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to believe that you are good. Help us to trust your wisdom as we pray. May we not give in to cynical attitudes that see prayer as futile, as a waste of time. But may we be a people, O Lord, who see prayer as a great delight and privilege which you call us to so that we might enjoy communion with you, our Heavenly Father, as your children. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.